Victimhood. It's been on my heart to teach this for quite a while now. I think mainly because I, everywhere I look in our culture today, I see victimhood. I mean, I've talked about it before in our fellowship that nothing attracts Satan more than weakness of character. He thrives on weakness of character, and victimhood is weakness of character in spades. So we're going to talk about victimhood today. What is victimhood? We're going to talk about victimhood as it opposes accountability. Accountability in the sense that victimhood is a convenient means of offloading responsibility, right? If you're a victim, you're not responsible. Victimhood as opposed to endurance. Victimhood is actually the opposite of bearing up through seasons of trouble and challenge. The victim throws his hands up and says, I'm a victim. And that is absolutely the worst thing that you can do in a season of trouble. Victimhood as opposed to seeking genuine counsel and help, that you choose rather to grumble and complain, right? There are times where we have real issues that we are beset upon by Satan you know, in a, a myriad of ways, whether it's emotional, psychological through circumstances, you are overwhelmed and you need help. There is absolutely nothing wrong with seeking help from other people. And there are, as we'll talk about here, there are legitimate complaints that a person can have. If you, leave, if you read the book of Job, <laughs> the book of Job is filled with legitimate complaints. A lot of illegitimate complaints, but certainly, you know, when we are in the midst of trying circumstances, we want to be able to vent a little bit. And But victimhood is self-seeking, and uh, there's a difference. Victimhood is the temptation to see yourself as the victim, the victim. Uh, victimhood is seen by how a person speaks. A victim goes to great pains to share his trouble and negativity with you. The victimhood mentality is held by people who are self-centered self-centered. You can sit with a person like this for hours talking and it never occurs to them to ask anything about your life. Too busy talking about their victimhood. They complain about everything that's happening to them and nothing, nothing is ever the victim's fault. See, that's the beauty of being a victim. You can't be blamed. It's always somebody else's fault. The victim is filled with excuses for why they are either able or unable to do something, right? They hold on to every injustice, every hurt, every pain, and they refuse to let it go. Because everything for the victim is an injustice, they are unable to distinguish between trifles and genuine crises. 
Isn't that interesting? Victimhood is weakness. It's weakness of character. And I think every parent should know this. Here's a newsflash for you. Life is filled with losses, disappointments, and setbacks for every one of us. We must learn how to take our losses, our disappointments, and our setbacks in stride and continue to press forward with the Lord. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. And in verse 14, it says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if, on some point, you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. See that? God is all about making it clear to us that we don't have time to indulge victimhood. We don't have time for it. Victimhood is sinful. It's sinful. No person has the right to indulge him or herself in the sin of self-pity. No one. It's a sin just like any other sin. And in fact, if you look at it from the spiritual sense, victimhood, you know, a self-seeking victimhood mentality usually lies at the root of a lot of other problems. As I've said in fellowship before, Christians are like cats. We always land on our feet, if our mentality is right. If you have a victim's mentality, you won't land on your feet. Go to Philippians 1 and look in verse 12. It says, now, this is Paul speaking, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what happened to Paul? He was being persecuted. When you're being persecuted, I'm sure you're tempted to say, woe is me, woe is me. But what did Paul say? I just want you guys to know that what's happening to me is advancing the gospel. Where was Paul's heart here? In moving the word, in advancing the gospel. It wasn't in self-preservation. In fact, Paul had made the commitment early on in his ministry that it was anything for the word, anything for the gospel. It was all about advancement of the gospel and that he was willing to give everything, including his life, for that advancement. And you think about the importance of vows in a person's life in combating things like victimhood. If I make a vow and I say anything for the Lord, then I can judge the trifles, you know? I'm not going to get taken down by things, you know, events in life. I'm going to keep pressing towards the mark. It goes on in verse 13 to say, as a result, it has come, become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God courageously and fearlessly. Isn't that interesting? So how Paul stood up against this situation, this persecution that he was involved in, encouraged others to do the same way, to speak that word boldly. You know, I was thinking about it this morning. We don't have to go too far to find an example of this in our own ministry. John Lynn. John Lynn has been dealing with a fairly aggressive cancer for seven years now, and yet he keeps on keeping on. Not a word of complaint, and every day he's doing the work of the Lord, and I think we should admire that. It certainly is a, an example to me. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, 
supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So that was the big deal to Paul, was that Christ is preached. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians 11. Look in verse 23. It says, Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Was there a victimhood mentality here? No. I mean, he would get persecuted, and he would come back the next day. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and have toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the uh, churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from the window in the wall and slipped through his hands. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I hear all these college students on these college campuses who are going on and on about, you know, languages, violence, and, you know, getting upset over trifles, trifles, and act like they are suffering. Here they are, the most entitled race in the history of mankind, going to a college campus, not even having a lot of them having to work, but go to classes, and yet they're being encouraged to complain and to whine about their lot in life. And it's just, it's really hard to listen to. And when I listen to this, I always think of Paul and this whole record that we just got finished reading. That's suffering. I think about the Christians who are over in the Sudan or Eritrea or Nigeria who are being murdered for their faith. And yet over here we have just an entitled generation of children who are whining about their lot in life. It's truly amazing how deceived people can get. And like I said, our institutions are encouraging people in this sin of self-pity, of victimhood. And if you see it that way, you'll understand what Satan's after. Satan wants people to feel sorry for themselves, unthankful. Go to First Peter chapter 2. So we have Paul as an example of what Paul went through and how he bore up under persecution. And he did so with dignity and he did so with grace. In First Peter chapter 2 and look in verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because of his conscience of God. But how is it to your credit 
if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Now listen to this. You know, we're all Christians. We were all called. And Paul says right here, or Peter, I'm sorry, says here, for this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So we've been called to persecution. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted him himself to him who judges justly. Who is that? God, Yahweh, exactly. That when Jesus was under persecution, he didn't go whining and complaining and talking about, woe is me, how horrible is my lot in life. He went to God, and he is an example to us. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, so that's, I think that's hugely important. We have Paul who suffered mightily, Jesus who was crucified, and they all went to God with their their situation. And I'm sure there were times where Paul was ready to throw his hands up. I'm, I know Jesus was Garden of Gethsemane. What is What was that all about? He was tempted to give up, and yet he went to God. And, you know, I mean, we're all tempted to complain. I used to have for years this, I, I don't know, my wife knows what I'm talking about, this petulant child's attitude that I would get hit with something else. I would throw my hands up in the air and say, here we go again. And it was so childish. It was so childish. What should we do when something tough hits? We should be praying and getting with our spouse or our friend and hunkering down and figuring it out with the Lord's help, right? I read this uh, this uh, following couple of paragraphs here from a magazine that I get. Uh, it's put out by an Australian uh, woman who's like 25 years old. She decided that she was going to put together this this magazine, and it's it's excellent. And she has excellent writers who write for it. And I just thought it was so great that you had such a young woman who went out there and started this thing. Uh, but anyway, um, in this article I read, it said, Victimhood is defined in negative terms, the condition of having been hurt, damaged, or made to suffer. Yet humans have evolved to empathize with the suffering of others and to provide assistance so as to eliminate or compensate for the suffering. Consequently, signaling suffering to others can be an effective strategy for attaining resources. And what it's saying here is that 300 years ago, people weren't all that empathetic for other people. You know, they're scratching out a living. I'm scratching out a living. They were a hearty stock of people. You know, somebody comes up and says, uh, I broke a nail. You're not going to get any sympathy from anybody. But nowadays, in our entitled culture, and we live in a very entitled culture, you know, nobody's eking out a living, scratching out a living, that even our poor are better off than 90% of the world. But even in this culture, apparently, you know, this article is saying we've evolved to start empathizing with, the, with other people. And with this whole idea of empathizing with other people, people have caught on and said, wow, you know, 
I can get some attention by being a victim, right? And then we have this term that I've used in fellowship before called virtue signaling, right? It's a real attention getter. And I was thinking about it this morning. Where does this, this victimhood come from? Where, where, where do we first start indulging in that? And it's that childhood, right? Parents who are overindulging their children in sympathy. I told you about it before. I was raised in a military household, and my father was a pretty tough man. And in our household, if I skimmed my knee and I came up to my father crying and looking for sympathy, I got none from him. He looked at me and he'd say, stop your blubbering and rub some dirt on it. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because at the time I hated him for that. I hated him. You know, I got love for my mom. That's, you know, I got, you know, and, and we were talking about that before fellowship. There certainly is a lot of room for loving and, you know, hugging on your kid. But there's also a need for getting your kid to be tough and to learn how to be self-reliant and stand up and, you know, not get taken down by these trifles. We're taught in today's culture that such a response comes from a hard-hearted, uncaring parent, aren't we? But that's not true. It's a parent who knows the hard world that lies ahead and refuses to indulge his child's sinfulness, right? And a good parent understands that. A good parent understands that a child will always gravitate towards victimhood, always, and that you have got to challenge that kid to become self-reliant and not be a victim, not be a victim. You know, I was thinking, too, about what God said to Cain. Remember back in, the, in Genesis when he was talking to Cain about sin, and he said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is not right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And I'll tell you that victimhood is always lying at the door. It's always lying at the door, especially for our children. We must never allow ourselves to play the victim, ever. This article goes on to say victims in today's culture may receive attention, sympathy, and social status, as well as financial support and other benefits. And being a victim can generate certain kinds of power. It can justify the seeking of retribution. You know, we're hearing today about reparations. Uh, provide a sense of legitimacy or psychological standing to speak on certain issues. And may even confer moral impunity by minimizing blame for victims' own wrongdoing. Presumably, most victims would eagerly forego such benefits if they were able to free themselves from their plight. But when victimhood yields benefits, it incentivizes people to signal their victimhood to others or to exaggerate or even fake victimhood entirely. This is especially true in contexts that involve alleged psychological harms where appeals are made to third parties with the claimed damage often being invisible, unverifiable, and based exclusively on self-reports. Does everybody understand what that means? That, that I, I, I'm suffering as in some category and, you know, it's my story and I'm going to hold fast to it. I don't have to verify anything. I don't have to but, you know, I'm the victim, and everybody lauds me as the victim. Such circumstances allow unscrupulous people to take advantage of the kindness and sympathy of others by co-opting victim status for personal gain. And so, people do. Isn't that interesting? And we live in a culture where victimhood is rewarded. 
it's rewarded. And as I said earlier, victimhood is sin. It's sin. And that's what our culture is doing. It's, it's rewarding sin. Our culture is rife with victimhood. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I was thinking about Israel in captivity. Now, here was an entire uh, nation of people who had been put in captivity, and, and they truly were victims, weren't they? They were, they were enslaved, the entire nation. And when they were finally released, that victimhood, that slave mentality didn't just burn off as soon as they walked away from Egypt. It went with them, didn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 8, look in verse 1. It says, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to do what? To humble you and to test you in order to know what is in your heart or what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your forefathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What a record. <laughs> what a record. That, that this time in the wilderness was to divest them of this victimhood status and to teach them that God was their sufficiency. And God was looking at them to see how they would respond. And time after time after time, they fell back into this victim mentality. Uh, you, you don't have to turn there. Exodus chapter 5. The people complained to Moses that because of him and his talk of a promised land, Pharaoh made things worse for them. Exodus chapter 14. The people complained and said Moses, to Moses, let us alone. In Exodus chapter 15, the people complained about the bitter water. In Exodus chapter 16, the people complained about being hungry, and God gave them manna. And in Exodus 17, the people complained about being thirsty. It was complain, complain, complain. That was what was in their hearts. And it's interesting that we, have a, a, we live in a day and time now where we, we, uh, most of our national vocabulary or discussion is about uh, slavery, that happened 150, 200 years ago, and yet we're seeing the heart of a slave being encouraged in the people. This sense of victimhood. It's just, it's wrong. It's wrong. Second Kings chapter 4. Second Kings chapter 4. God wants his people to be strong in character, to be resourceful, to be courageous. That's what God wants for his people. And when we are raising our children, we have to raise our children to do that. If we do everything for our children and we coddle our children, we'll never teach them how to stand on their own two feet. And they will be victims. We've got to be challenging our kids to rise up and be accountable, to stop blaming everybody else for their problems and start accepting responsibility. That's what we are doing. And when we turn our kids loose to society, we should be turning kids over that have you know, character. Sadly, that's not happening in our country. Second Kings chapter 4. I love this record. It's the record of the Shunammite woman. It says, one day Elisha went to Shunam, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let us 
make a small room on the roof and put it put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay here whenever he comes to us. I thought that was just sweet and thoughtful. You know, here's a woman. She knows this man of God has devoted himself to doing God's will, doesn't have a lot of money. She took care of him. Uh, verse 11. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant, uh, Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elijah said to her, tell her, you, can, uh, you have gone to all the trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elijah asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elijah said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father and was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told the servants, carry him to his mother. After the servants lifted him and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon and then died. What a heartbreaker. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. So she had a crisis, right? This son of her love had just died and she needed to get... I, I liked how, I mean, she was after it. She didn't just sit, sit back and accept the circumstances. She was after it. 23. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not a new moon or a Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set, set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, it, there's the Shunammite. Shunammite. Uh, run and meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. I love that. There was no complaining. There was no complaining. This woman had a legitimate complaint, didn't she? And she went to the man that could help her. Her son was dead before his time. And she didn't cry, woe is me, woe is me. She told Gehazi, everything is all right. This woman was not a victim. Verse 27. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said? Didn't I tell you? Don't raise my hopes. Elijah said to Gehazi, Tuck your belt into your, cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand, and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elijah and told him, The boy has not awakened. Then Elijah reached the house. There was the boy lying dead on his couch. And he went up, 
shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got up on the bed and lay down upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elijah turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elijah summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Isn't that a wonderful story? I love that story. She wasn't a complainer. She went and she sought God's deliverance. And that's what we have to do. There is no problem with us getting people to help us if we need help. There's no problem getting people to pray for us, to help us financially, to help us with you know personal support. Absolutely. But we should never, ever, ever feel like we have to complain to people indiscriminately. Go to Genesis chapter... 50. We all know the record of, of Joseph, right? Joseph was sold into slavery as a teenager, spent his a good chunk of his life in jail for no reason, falsely accused, um, forgotten, and then God blessed him and made him second to Pharaoh in Egypt. I mean, it's quite a story. Genesis chapter 15, if you can picture this, here is Joseph standing with the brothers that sold him into slavery, and their father had just died. Verse 14, it says, After burying their father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others that had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back with the wrongs he did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your fathers. The father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. What a great heart. I mean, there. You know, we talked last week about forgiveness and about vendetta. And here's a great story about forgiveness. I mean, if, if anybody had a, a reason to hold a grudge, Joseph certainly did. But he forgave them, and and he wept for them. Verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And then listen to what he said. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of a nation of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I think the story of Joseph from beginning to end is a story of, you know, resourcefulness, certainly godly resourcefulness, and of not giving into this sense of victimhood. And even at the end here, he could have fallen in, he could have given way to unforgiveness that we talked about last week, and he didn't. He didn't. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I think it's one of the greatest things that you can teach your child is not to be a victim. Look in verse 7. It says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Right? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not 
true sons. Isn't that something? So the mark of true fatherhood is disciplining your kids and teaching them these tough lessons. That's, I mean, that's a, if you fail to do this, you are failing as a father, right? And there's certainly a lot more to being a father, but these are one of the big, this is one of the big lessons in fatherhood is teaching your kid to stand on his or her own two feet. Moreover, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Isn't that something? And God certainly wants that taught. And and reinforce in the body of Christ that we are not victims. I think, you know, we we've talked about it in this fellowship before about this critical race theory that has gained prominence in the church. Why is it gaining prominence in the church? What is it? What weakness resides in the people of the church that they find so appealing in this critical race theory? It's victimhood. It's victimhood. If a person knew how to stand on their own two feet and did so, they'd find nothing alluring about critical race theory. Go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I mean, this is what they, you know, the whole notion of identity politics is, or intersectionality, the idea is you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim. The only person who's not a victim is the white male. (laughs) The white male is not considered a victim, but an oppressor. Everybody else is oppressed. They're a victim. And it's just wrong. You are teaching sin. Philippians chapter 2, look in verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. That's something. Um, It's a big deal. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Does everybody know what that sentence means? But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, it means that Paul's on his way to death, and he knows it. Isn't that something? And yet he knows that, you know, ultimately... He's going to be executed, and he's taking care of the people, just like Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And then he was up there, and remember when uh, he had John and his mother, and he says, he says, behold your mother, behold your son, right? That he's taking care of people, even though he knows that he has just a few moments left on this earth. And this is what Paul's doing. That's so contrary to being a victim. Verse 18, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. That's a big deal. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. We've talked in this fellowship about the sense of discontent. Discontent. This is what resides in the heart of a victim. Discontent. Everything is everybody else's fault. Romans 12, look in verse 2. Be not conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself 
with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. That's something. Remember what I said earlier that a a person who's a victim, got the victimhood mentality, is very self-centered, self-seeking. And we can't, and we can't have that. We need to think of ourselves soberly, that I am who I am, and I have what I have because of God. God has blessed me. Does that make sense? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, and look in verse 18. It says, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We are thankful. You can't be thankful and complaining at the same time. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That you are sufficient, sufficient. Yet it was good of you uh, to share in my troubles. You know, I can do everything. I can suffer. I can be abundant, but I'm very blessed that you helped me out here, Philippians. Go to Romans chapter 8. This is a verse that all of us know. Verse says, look in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no victims here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God's got us taken care of. Second Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to end in, in this section. You all know this record. Look in verse 7. Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassing great revelations that I have, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? That you would boast in your weakness? But if you think about it, I mean, the great challenge is you know, in in the human soul is, do I rely on myself or do I rely on Christ? So by boasting in your own weakness, you're essentially saying, I can't do it on my own. It's the Lord that's going to help me here. That That is a good thing. That's something we should constantly be saying. That's boasting in our weakness. Let me read that over again. Verse 9, but he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, right? It's not weakness of character that we're talking about here. It's inability to do things that are outside my sphere. But my inability is Christ's ability. Does that make sense? I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak or unable to do it, then I am strong. What a great verse. Verse says, so there's no victims here. And uh, I just wanted to share that with you guys. And uh, I know that uh, victimhood, uh, like I said earlier, that it's a sin that lies always at the door. And it's very insidious. It finds its way in, um, you know, just in general attitudes. And uh, we need to stand against it always. Okay.
So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. Thank you, Father, for just blessing this fellowship with a, just a great uh, dependency on you and a great strength and resolve. I thank you for our kids growing up and being contributors to this society and not detractors from it. So I thank you for all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. He is my father.